Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner. We begin with breaking news. Fed Chair Jerome Powell just about to speak at the Economic Club of New York. Let's get straight to our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Steve, over to you. Frank, thanks. In a speech or an opening statement that is, it turns hawkish, it turns dovish. The Fed chair says continued economic strength could warrant further tightening of monetary policy. Inflation, he says, is still too high. And he does note the recent string of stronger data, saying that recent data show resilience of the economy and the strength of the labor market. Why does that matter? Because he repeats his comment that a return to 2% inflation is likely going to require below trend growth and softening in the labor market. But before you think it's all hawkish, it is not. He goes on to cite risks of doing too little or doing too much with policy. He notes the stance of policy is restrictive and it has helped to this point to bring down inflation and to reduce growth. He says because the Fed hiked rates so quickly, there may still be meaningful tightening in the pipeline. Financial conditions, he says, uh, alluding to those high rates in the bond market right now, have tightened significantly and could affect monetary policy. An allusion to some of the comments from his colleagues who have said that because the bond market's doing its work for it, the Fed may not have to do much. He doesn't say that exactly, but he alludes to it. He says the committee ultimately is proceeding carefully, will base its decisions on data and the outlook and the balance of risks. A little bit more on the economy. He says the data does show progress towards the Fed's goals of maximum employment and stable prices. He says the decline in inflation over, over the summer was a, quote, very favorable development. And he talks specifically about the September data. He said it did show a continued downward trend, but was somewhat less encouraging. Short-term measures of core inflation, he says, are now running below 3%. But he warns you, a few months of good data are only the beginning of the Fed getting enough confidence to uh, come off of the, the rates that it has. Now, he said he can't know how long these low readings in inflation will persist. While conditions remain tight in the labor market, it is gradually cooling. He cites the decline in job openings, the uh, reduction in the quits, and also the decline in the wage premium for job changers. Finally, he notes that geopolitical tensions are highly elevated and pose a risk to the global economy, calling the attacks on Israel horrifying. So, Frank, there you go. A little bit of something for everybody in there. I think ultimately the way you what you walk away with is this idea of the committee is going to proceed carefully here uh, and it is going to uh, uh, take into account all of the data that's coming in. And there is no decision yet on what the next right. move is from the Fed. You know, Steve, I know you're saying that's what you walk away with, but give us a sense. You've, you've read the prepared remarks. In your mind, does it lean more dovish or hawkish? I think it 
leans very neutral with an eye towards, uh, you know, what was it? Who was it, Clint Eastwood? He was sleeping with his eye open with the gun under his, under his pillow. I kind of think that's the way Powell's sleeping this, th th these days, and I think his eye is open for any inflation. But there is a bit of a warning here. If you take just those two comments, the economy is running strong, and you're going to need a period of below-trend growth to bring inflation down. That tells you the chair has more to do. But you can't go quite, you can't run with that because of the other things he says in there about financial conditions are tight, there's additional tightening coming from the rate hikes it already had, and plus you also have this issue of geopolitical tensions, which is he's really mentioned for the first time here. So um, I, okay. I do think, look, here's what I thought going in. I thought the chair was going to take the time that the market was giving him to make up his mind. And by that I mean when you look at the probabilities, and I'll look at them in just a second, that showed the market did not really expect a rate hike at all. But to the extent it did, it was beginning to sort of go 50-50 for January. Got it. And in that there's no pressing need for the Fed to act or decide right now, I thought the chair was going to take the time it gave the market was giving him. He's taking it, but saying, you're, you know what, you're on notice. If okay. we don't get the slowing, I may have to do more. All right, Steve, stick with us. We're going to keep you around. We're going to talk a lot more about this. Now, I just want to go with uh, uh, Steve's reference, by the way, the investment committee here at Post 9. Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, and Jim Labenthal. Exciting day. The market's really popping. Just to go with what Steve was just talking about, the Clint Eastwood reference, looks like he made the market's day. We're seeing the S&P pop, the NASDAQ pop, all of them up just about a third of a percent. The S&P's easing back just a bit. Uh, what did you make of these prepared remarks? Steve's saying it's pretty neutral. Um, a lot of different messages in those prepared remarks. Of course, we're still waiting for the Q&A coming up. A lot of different messages. And as Steve was speaking, all I was doing was focusing on a U.S. 10-year Treasury. Right. Would the U.S. 10-year Treasury go above 5% as Steve was talking, addressing the comments from the Federal Reserve Chairman? That's not what's happened. No. We have a 10-year down at 491 right now as we speak. Um, I think the market, in the way that it is positioned, needed a very hawkish statement to get above 5%. Because in, in the totality of where speculation is for the Treasury market right now, it is overwhelmingly short Treasury. So you needed to push it higher above 5%, a very hawkish statement. Sure you didn't get that. You're sitting at 491. In the coming days, could we get something to push above 5%? Absolutely. I'm not dismissing. But where we are in this moment right now, it wasn't hawkish enough to push us above 5%, and equities are responding accordingly. Yeah, just to your point, as you mentioned, the 10-year at 4.91 earlier today, I believe it was up to about 4.97 or so, at least when I was doing my show, Worldwide Exchange, uh, easing back quite a bit. Jenny, over to you. What did you make of the prepared remarks? And again, I want to emphasize to the audience, we're going to go to the Q&A after the speech. Right now, we're breaking down these prepared remarks. So... What really caught my attention, well, first of all, the, the Clint Eastwood thing, when I opened, I thought, yeah, we all are, right? We all are, all the time. As investors right now, there's so much to be nervous about. We're all sleeping with one eye open, whether it's broader macro geopolitics, whether it's, you know, interest rates, earnings that are starting to come out. So there's a real unease. But the whole neutralness to that statement, I kind of think that's where we are. And it, and it doubles down on me, for me, where I stand, which is, Look, dovish is no good because what does dovish mean? Dovish means that we have a weaker economy and that's going to be harder for earnings to grow off of. Hawkish is no good because that means higher rates for longer, which caps valuations. That's no good. So all of this just kind of sets me more in my tracks on we're pretty stuck for right now. 
right? We really need something to give. Um, that's maybe not even the right way to say it. We really need something to evolve, right, where we can see earnings start to grow significantly or valuations start to, to expand significantly. And I think the only thing that's going to get us there is the passage of time. And it's going to be a long time to get there. It's not a quick overnight fix. I mean, if you think back to two years ago, Frank, I, I was looking back at this market letter that I wrote to clients, and two years ago I said, hey, we've just grown at 16.5% on an annualized basis for the previous 10 years. The past two years, the market's perfectly flat. Why is that? Because Kevin. we're digesting that outsized growth. That's going to take a long Kevin. time to work off of, and we're in that process. Yeah, so important to know also the market's easing back from that initial pop after the remarks were released, still in the green, but just easing back a bit. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. Well, those remarks were kind of a muddle for me. Um, I don't you know, I'm glad that the market popped, but that doesn't seem to me to be a really rational uh, response there. There's not enough there to sink your teeth into. So to Jenny's point, uh, well made just now that it's going to be the passage of time and you're going to need some evolution here. I think we're back to being data dependent. Now, that's a that's a two-way street, okay, because economic data is generally quite strong. I could point to the jobless statistics, the weekly jobless claims for today, and, you know, that's going to provoke the Fed to go higher. But what they really need to see is inflation coming down. That's the soft landing. When's the next inflation reading? Well, it's a week from tomorrow. That's the PCE for uh, uh, September. Uh, that's the most uh, watched by the Fed. We'll see what that comes in on. Um, I think besides that data point, what you're looking for in the next week and a half before the next Fed meeting is, and I'm sorry to bring up a competing news uh, outlet, but Nick Timrose of the Wall Street Journal. He's the unofficial, official uh, Fed whisperer here. I think Steve does a fantastic job taking nothing away from him, but when the Fed wants to make sure there are no surprises, it will go to Nick Timrose. Now, right now, the markets are saying there's not going to be a Fed rate hike in November. If that changes in the Fed's mind, Nick Timrose is going to be the one who brings it. So that's unfortunately what we've got to do for the next week and a half. I don't think the Fed is going to go in November, but um, you know, there's not enough in, in that uh, prepared remarks to make me think that we're all clear, not even close. Yeah, you know, we're going to talk to Steve about, you know, what the probabilities are in just a second. But right now, we're going to take a live look at the New York Economic Club. Uh, just a short time ago, inside the room where Jay Powell is going to have his speech, there were protesters there. We're being told those protesters have now been cleared out. Uh, people are starting to get settled right now. Jay Powell expected to take to the, the podium in, in just a short time. But now I want to go back to our Steve Leisman. Um, Jim kind of led us over to this, Steve. What are the odds of a hike, not only in the meeting coming up in just under two weeks, but the next meeting after that? And, of course, everybody's trying to figure out when does a cut come? So they did take a modest step down. Um, I'm not insulted by what Jim said much. No problem Good. with that. Sorry, Steve. Um, I really don't mean look, it that way. Um, no worries, Jim. No worries, Jim. I'll, I'll, we'll talk later. Uh, anyway, um, uh, it's uh, th the probability for November is down. The probability for December is down. Just to call it a 4%, 3.5% probability for November, 32% for December, and 39 for November. It had been at 45 I think the key here is it's being seen as dovish. Um, and, and my colleague, Nick, for whom I have great respect, by the way, did take a more dovish tack than I did. The only reason is that I'd have not, Jim, is I don't see the economy necessarily weakening the way it appears to need to to keep the Fed sidelined. That's really a part of how I read this. If Powell is telling us the economy needs to weaken for me to be kept at bay and for inflation to come down, and that economy doesn't weaken. And I'm just at a point here, Jim, where, you know, I have covered every single forecast out there 
quarter after quarter. Watch it revised higher. Heard the endless comments about the consumer about to give it up and never really doing so. That, okay, if you think the economy is coming down and going to slow down and come below trend, then you can take a dovish takeaway from this. If you don't, you've got to be neutral to hawkish. All right, there we go. Steve, uh, Steve, it's Joe. Quick question. You know I'm focused on this. The tremendous amount of supply of treasuries. The market was caught offside in August with it. Now on November 1st, the Treasury makes the announcement once again. Is the supply going to be addressed to where we see less supply? Or do you think that they're going to continue with the increase in supply, which is going to rattle the Treasury market even further? So I have to unpack that question, Joe, with two different answers. The first answer is the amount of supply. I believe that is supposed to come down over time, that next year this time will be less. The more important issue, I think you underscore, Joe, in your question, which is the surprise. I believe the Treasury has to stop surprising the Treasury market and its buyers um, and start to figure out a way to talk to them in a way that no longer surprises them. Now, sometimes they can't do that, but you would hope and think that the Treasury Secretary Yellen and the people who work for her that are in charge of the domestic finance market would get in, would get in front of this, and they haven't yet necessarily. You're right. We have to look to these next announcements and know, will the Treasury market be surprised? Joe, you said something earlier that I want to um, explain a little more detail. You said the market is short Treasuries. That is accurate. What, what I want to add to that is the market is also short duration, and that yes. is the Treasuries on the long end. Yes. And I think there are buyers out there for these Treasuries. I don't buy this notion that nobody's going to buy them. I think they will be bought, and that is when some stability can be provided to the market about issuance and about the Fed. Those two things need to come into play. So I think you're absolutely right to be focused on it. You're 100% right to be focused on the issuance issue, and the Treasury needs to get out in front of this. Yeah. All right, so Jenny, I'm going to come over to you. Steve, continue to stick with us. Um, both you and Jim, you kind of mentioned, you felt like the comments were a bit muddled. One thing was clear. He continues to say inflation is still too high, and a few months of good data are only the beginning. Um, what's your view? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Keep going. Oh, well, that was because, really the Okay, but the point. you know why? Because you said something so smart on a show that you host, um, when you hosted Halftime maybe like two months ago when we were talking about this same subject, and I've referred to it a lot of times, which was we were talking about inflation coming down and that it's still too high. And you made the analogy, you're like getting from that 3.7 that we're at now to two and a half where they want to be, it's like losing that last five pounds. It's really, really hard. And I think how... I think he's right to kind of muddle it because there is not clarity right now. And he does have the bond market doing a lot of the work for him. So to come out with a lot of strength and a lot of conviction would be pretty foolish, right? There's no way right now to actually have strength or conviction because the data that we're getting is indeed muddled. And we saw that in September's CPI numbers where even, even once you deconstructed it, like some things were still kind of some things had moved back up after moving down, some things had moved down. There's just a lot of noise out there. And so I, I really, you know, that's why I laughed though, because I'm like, that was the smartest thing, that last five pounds. Think of inflation in the same way. Getting it down to where they need to be is really, really 
hard. All right, really quick, I want to return to the New York Economic Club. We're taking a live look right now. So again, we want to tell everybody, uh, Jay Powell's speech has been delayed a bit. There were protesters in the room. We actually have a picture of the protesters that were in the room. It appears to be a climate protest. Those protesters have now been cleared, but a short time ago, they actually delayed Jay Powell's speech. He, he was there on the stage. You can see him, I believe, there on the left-hand side. The picture's a bit small from here. But you can see right now, they, their banner says, the Fed is burning, money futures planet. These are apparently climate protesters. These climate protesters were cleared from the room. Jay Powell left the stage. We're now waiting for this event to get back started once again. Jay Powell to re-enter the room, everyone to get settled once again, and for him to make his remarks. Again, we're going to continue to break down his prepared remarks that we have. And actually, right now, we are seeing Jay Powell at the podium. We generally know what he's going to say. We do have his prepared remarks. We're waiting for him to continue his speech. We're going to return back to the New York Economic Club for the Q&A. But for now, I actually want to return back to Steve Leisman. Um, Steve, things have clearly gotten settled in the room. Jay Powell's back at the podium. Uh, right now, looking at the markets, they did inch higher after his comments, but they've eased back just a bit. Uh, what's your take on this disruption? And again, I want to come back to you. Jim and Jenny saying they believe the comments are a bit muddled. Do you expect to get some more clarity in the Q&A? Yeah, uh, I'll address that real quickly. But let me talk about the uh, uh, Powell is kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't on mm -hmm. climate change. If he, he did a little bit in terms of saying we were going to be not really making it official, but just looking at the climate risk in different banks' portfolios. Uh, and he got hammered by the Republican side, and now he's getting hammered from the other side for apparently not doing enough. This idea that the Fed should be out there, uh, uh, what, what was said a long time ago by uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, assessing uh, uh, bank lending for whether or not it was, it was helping or hurting with climate change. Of course, the Republican side pilloried the Fed for, for, for her for saying that. So let me get to this issue, though, about uh, the muddled outlook. If you listen to Bob Pisani, who does a wonderful job of breaking down market views, Frank, it is simply muddled. It is very muddled right here. We keep putting forward these strong economic numbers. 5.4% for Atlanta Fed GDP. Okay, maybe the street is a point or two below that, but wherever it is, it's above potential growth. What do we do with retail sales? Surprise to the upside. Third month in a row. The idea that with this fourth quarter, less than 1% GDP growth, now looking a little bit stronger because of how we're ending the quarter. So th this economy keeps on chugging along. We revised up the amount of savings people had. It seems like people remain employed. And by the way, incomes have turned positive. Real incomes, inflation-adjusted incomes have turned positive. People seem to have money in their pocket. They appear to be spending. I am not hearing, maybe you are, Frank, from the executives we have on our air, all day long that the consumer is necessarily giving it up. So in that context, it's a very muddled outlook in terms of waiting for this economy to slow down, which is what the Fed wants. So at the least, I think you should think about rates being high or the Fed keeping rates high for at least an extended period. Right now, the best guess in the market is that there's maybe a cut sometime in the summer. I don't really care much do they raise a quarter or not. I think the key thing is it looks like at this pace or this rate of growth of the economy, they're going to keep rates above 5% for several months.
You know, Steve, to your point, looking at uh, initial weekly jobless claims coming at their lowest level since Q1 of this year, uh, still indicating a pretty tight labor market that might lead to more inflation. Of course, we have a lot of labor activity here in the U.S. Uh, Jim Labenthal, I think you have a question for Steve. Yeah, I do. First off, an apology, Steve. I mean, I feel terrible. Let me <laughs> just on, be clear. That <laughs> Jim, anytime... I'm just giving you to you. <laughs> okay, but let me just say it on the air. Anytime it's there's important economic indicators coming out, I'm watching you, period. Nobody else it's for the analysis. Um, here's the question to you, though. Given what we're all saying, hey, it's a complicated situation, it's muddled, this economy is much hotter than expected, is it possibly just so simple as saying that the, the neutral uh, Fed funds rate is a lot higher than any of us thought, and maybe these uh, current levels are, are just not restrictive enough? I mean, maybe it's just that simple. By the way, to me, if that is the case, that would be very positive, because we are slowing down. Not fast enough, but we are slowing down in terms of inflation. And if we haven't gotten restrictive enough, well, maybe that puts a recession further away. Joe, over to you. Yeah, that is a takeaway. And, and, and I do think, by the way, at some point, if growth is indeed stronger than people believe, that needs to show up and will show up in corporate earnings. Because remember, corporate earnings are just the share of the overall pie extracted in profit by corporations. So in that sense, if the pie is growing, then the pie, then the slice of that's given to corporations will grow as well. So we'll see. I think earnings have been pretty good so far, and that should help with valuations, certainly helping valuations relative to the competition from treasuries, which is where everybody, by the way, is a little off balance right now. And you guys talk about this every day. What is this stock worth? How valuable is that dividend or this share buyback in the face of a 5% return in the two-year? A lot of people are saying, you know what? You give me 5% for sure, I'll take that compared to taking a gamble in some of the stocks that are out there right now. So that puts people off balance. I just want to say, Jim, in terms of watching and watching me, please tune in tomorrow at uh, 7.30. I'm going to get a chance to ask all these questions and all the questions you guys are raising to Raphael Bostic in an exclusive interview. Uh, he's the Atlanta Fed president, of course, guys. Steve, I like your style, getting your plug in. Uh, Joe. <laughs> Steve, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's somewhat perplexing and, and clearly rather odd, uh, odd rather. It, it seems like 1994 to see an environment where you have so much ge geopolitical tension, but yet the Treasury market is not respond responding with safe haven buying. Um, ultimately, does that suggest that it's really the fiscal stimulus that's behind all of this, behind the strong economy, hmm. behind what's going in the Treasury market? And if, in fact, that's the case, does the Federal Reserve acknowledge that? Do they understand that? And do they really... Do they really have the ability to do the work that's necessary to push against that stimulus? You know, Joe, I'm going to push back a little bit on that with you, and I'll answer the following way. Um, and again, I'm answering this clinically with yep. due respect to the horror that was uh, happened in Israel uh, from the terrorist attack and all the troubles going on there now. People looked around. I reported and started talking to people about the potential downside here. Of course, there's always this horrific idea of, of a wider war, but most people feel it's contained and the apparent uh, the sense of a need for safe haven in the wake of what happened in Israel really wasn't there. And there's a little niche in this thing that we haven't really spoken a lot about, mm -hmm. which is if you go back to the last time things flared up in the Middle East, and the one potential route where this would affect everybody economically is the oil route. Well, guess what? America was not the preeminent producer in the world. The amount of oil that we get in this country that comes from this country yeah. and is imported from not OPEC countries, but 
but Canada has really changed, I think, the need for a safe haven play with this particular incident right here. So I'm just pushing back with you a little bit on the underlying reason there, Joe, for your question. No, it's a thoughtful response. I appreciate right, it. Gentlemen, I hate to interrupt. Very quickly right now, Jay Powell just wrapped up his remarks at the New York Economic Club. Right now we're seeing the markets at their session highs. We're going to go over to the Q&A live right now from New York City at the New York Economic This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. It's time, given everything that's going on in the world and in the economy. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss. Let me start with something you just referred to, which is the surprise to the upside in the economic data, despite, as you termed it, I think, historically fast pace of growth. Are you surprised at how resilient the United States economy is? Just today, we got jobless claims numbers, surprised because they were low. We got the retail sales numbers you mentioned. We got industrial production. Across the board, it seems like a very strong economy, despite all you've done to try to slow it down. Yes, so uh, we certainly have a very uh, uh, resilient economy on our hands. We've got uh, the economy growing strongly. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the U.S. economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year above its longer run trend. So that's been a surprise, driven largely by uh, consumer spending, driven by a very strong job market with uh, people getting jobs with high, first high nominal wages, and then as inflation has come down, real wages, which is spurring spending. And we've also had inflation coming down. So. You know, uh, that's, it, it really is a story of much stronger demand. There may also be, there may be some ways in which the economy is um, less affected by interest rates. Uh, it's hard to know precisely, but for example, companies, many companies, any company with bond market access will have termed out its debt, right? And therefore may not be feeling the effects of higher rates. The same may be true of homeowners who have a, a long-term fixed rate, low rate mortgage who then are therefore not, because it's not an adjustable rate or a higher rate, they're not, they're not feeling that increase in rates. So the, the economy may be somewhat less uh, susceptible to the effects of rate increases. On the other hand, if you look at, um, look at interest-sensitive spending, these are very much the, 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 um, the places where we, see, we, where we expect to see and do see effects. So for example, in, um, in housing or in, you know, the housing effect has been sector has been very affected by higher rates as purchases of, of uh, durable goods. If you look at surveys, people will not say that it's a good time to buy a car or a house, quite the contrary. So we see policy working through its usual channels. It may just be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough. And, and again, it's all happening in a context of, of very strong demand. We've heard other people speculate maybe the terming out of debt, as you say, both corporate debt and household debt may diminish the effectiveness of rate hikes. Do you have a view on whether that's true? And if it is true, what does it say about monetary policy? Does it mean you have to go farther in the rate hikes, or do you just not have the power to affect it? 
So no, I, I don't think that, that there's a, um, a fundamental shift in the way that interest rates affect the economy. There may be some differences in this cycle because of what I mentioned. Um, I, as I mentioned, you, we are seeing those, the effects where we expect to see them, which is interest-sensitive spending and also asset prices to some extent, uh, and the exchange rate, which you're also seeing a strong exchange rate, which is, which is disinflationary. So I don't think there's a, a fundamental change in the way monetary policy affects the economy. And again, it goes back to just very strong demand. We take the economy as it is. We take fiscal policy and the economy and all the things we don't control, they come to us and we conduct policy always to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. So we just t take what comes. The fact that we have a strong growing economy, a strong growing labor market and uh, you know, inflation coming down. These are the elements that we want to, to see that to achieve the, the outcome we want. It may take more time, but ultimately, uh, those are, that's, this is the kind of thing you would want to see along the path to getting through this without a big increase in unemployment. How much effect thus far has the Fed had? Uh, we, we all have memorized now long and variable lags. How long and how variable, and where are you in that process? Are you at the 25% point, the 50% in terms of seeing it in the effect in the real economy? So there's, there's no precision in, the, uh, in, in our understanding of, of how long lags are. Um, one thing that has changed in the modern era is that markets now, uh, over the course of the last 30 years, central banks have decided instead of being secretive to be very transparent. And what that has meant is that markets move actually well in anticipation, well before our policy moves. So the transmission from policy moves to, to financial conditions actually happens before the moves now, whereas that was not the case 50 years ago when Milton Friedman you know, coined the phrase long and variable lags. So, but now you have financial conditions changing and the question is how does it affect the economy? The standard channels are uh, asset prices, interest sensitive spending and the exchange rate, for example. And we, again, we do see that happening just not as fast as we would like. And I would attribute some of that to just stronger demand. You know, household savings were, were turned out to be higher. Household spending has been stronger, and that's by far the largest part of the economy. In order to conduct monetary policy effectively, do you need at least a, hypoth a hypothesis about how much has already hit the economy? Because it's hard to know how much more you need to do if you don't know how far you've come. So on, on lags, I think if you think back, it's been a year since, now since, since the last 75 basis point hike we did. It was at the November meeting in 2022. The first one was in June, so it's more than a year. So we should be seeing the effects. By the way, they don't all just arrive on one day. They, they arrive and then they're thought to peak and then to diminish. So there's a lot of uncertainty around lags. Um, and one of the reasons why we have slowed down significantly this year is to give monetary policy time to work. The truth is, though, you can find academic support for different, different speeds of, and, and duration of lag. So we have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and, and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects. And I think, again, that's, that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we, were, we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we needed to be, and now we're moving carefully with these decisions. Uh, so when you spoke back in August of 2020 and sort of laid out the revisions to the framework, as it were, uh, you said that in terms of anticipated growth, the sort of consensus had gone from something like 2.5 to 1.8 percent, I think, were the numbers you laid out in that. Where are you now? Where's the Fed? Where are you and what you think basically the long-run growth is? Long-run potential growth um, 
is not something that moves around a lot over time, but I would, my, my own guess is it's around 2%. I think that the, the standard mainstream view would be a little bit below 2%, but I would just say 2% real growth uh, over time. And you know, what, what causes growth is you know, growth in hours worked plus growth in productivity. Growth in hours worked is, is a function of population growth in the long run and also labor force participation. Many things affect productivity. But if you, if you drop in reasonable, standard, longer term estimates of hours worked growth and productivity, which is just output per hour, productivity growth, you get something around 2%. And that's, that's higher than most other advanced economies. As you look at it, uh, do you see historical precedents for having a growing economy with high rates over a long period of time? I mean, as you look back, I mean, is it like the late 90s, for example? What, do you, what, what analogies do you draw as you try to determine what this might be doing to the economy over the longer term? So that, that's really a question about what the, what, the, what the level of rates will be going forward, what the neutral level will be. And I think it's, it's very hard to know confidently what the answer to that will be in five years. Some of the reasons why rates were low for the last 25 years were just uh, the aging of the global population and globalization and you know so lots of savings and relatively uh, with an aging population savings greater than investment so rates are lower and productivity was low so all of those led to low interest rates so what has changed with the pandemic you might see less effects from globalization certainly demographics the, the aging of the global population has not changed um, I mean this is a discussion we're having on an ongoing basis it doesn't really affect current policy but where will rates settle out? What will be at the, a normal rate? So if, if, the, if a typical Fed tightening cycle would leave you at five or six percent, and, and this is, this is in the, before the pandemic and before this, the low inflation period, you would have had, had uh, Fed rates in four or five percent or even higher frequently. Are we going back to that? I really don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. I mean, my guess is it'll be somewhere in the middle, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we can say this now. Uh, the effective lower bound is not an issue. You know, we were, we were very concerned about that. Right now, we're very far from the effective lower bound, and the economy's handling it just fine. But that's, you know, that's because we're at a time of, of really elevated demand uh, coming out of the pandemic as we reopened with fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. We have very strong demand in the United States. Hard to know what, what the economy will want in the way of interest rates when, when five years from now when all of the effects of the pandemic are behind us. You mentioned the long-term um, equilibrium rate, which you talked about again back in Jackson Hole in August of 2020. Back then you said you thought it had, the sort of consensus had come down. I think it was from like 4.25% to 2.5%. Where is it today? <laughs> um, so I think it, by any reckoning, long-term interest rates and the neutral inter interest rate came down steadily over the course of several decades. So where is it today? I, I, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're finding it, uh, basically. Uh, the, the, the idea was, the, I think the median indication of what the real neutral rate was around 50 basis points before the pandemic. It may have risen in the near term. The real question that, that matters, though, is will it rise in the long term? And that we don't know. But do you need to know it in order to conduct monetary policy? I mean, you must have to have at least a theory. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be right about it, but you have to have a hypothesis, don't you? As you look at the data, you have to put the data through some sort of uh, a theory. So we, we, we all write down our estimates of the longer run neutral rate every quarter in the summary of economic projections. And, and that's based on models. It's based on also looking out the window and, and including lags, thinking how are our current rates affecting the economy? 
So the, the evidence of your eyes is that the economy is, is handling much higher rates, at least for now, without difficulty. So notionally, that, that might tell you that, that the neutral rate has risen, or it may just tell you that we haven't had rates high enough for long enough. Um, you're right, though, but I, you know, you, you, you have, we have models for everything. We have formulas for everything. Ultimately, as a practitioner, mm -hmm. we have to you know, be focused on what the economy is telling us, even taking lags into account. What's it telling us? Does, does it feel like policy is too tight right now? I would have to say no. I think the evidence is not that a policy is too tight right now. Um, so, and, and we're at five, five and a quarter to five and a half percent. Are, do you think we're entering into a new phase in monetary policy? We had the Volcker disinflation, <clears throat> I think you referred to it as, and then we had sort of inflation targeting for a time. Uh, there was concern about secular stagnation. We were pushing the zero bound, as you said. We were concerned about that. And then we had the pandemic, and we had the, the real problem with inflation. Uh, what's the next phase look like? What, 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 how would you describe it? What we've been through is in all of the advanced economies around the world was a period where the effective lower bound, the proximity of interest rates, risk-free interest rates to the effective lower bound, which is zero or a little bit less, was a big problem for monetary policy. And, and just rates came down and down and down. And the problem is, if, if rates are gonna be close to zero in good times, then how do you cut? And so has, have central banks lost the power of their most important tool, which is interest rates? This was a subject of, of, a, of a vast literature in monetary policy research for 20 years. And, and you know, the, the, the most common answer was some kind of a makeup strategy. So you would credibly promise to, to run inflation a little bit hot and above 2%, and that would anchor inflation at 2% to counter the times when it was below. So that was a very serious problem, which filled books worth of research. Then comes the pandemic, then comes the response to the pandemic, and then comes the pandemic inflation, not just in the United States, but everywhere. The question is, is that a secular change, or are these, these factors that brought us to that place, are they still out there waiting to come back? And you know, books are written on this subject now. You, you can argue that, uh, and some have argued, that, that effectively the last 20 years before the pandemic were kind of a perfect storm of disinflation, mm -hmm. and now that's all gone, and we're going into a more inflationary period that will be characterized by more supply shocks and things like that, and therefore more, more inflationary pressure. Yeah. So are we going into such a, I, I don't know. I mean, all I can tell you, I think it's unknowable and you know, great theorists and researchers have different views on this. It's not, it's not something you can settle in advance. We'll have to see. I think our, our issue is right now trying to achieve a sufficiently restrictive stance of, of policy, policy to bring inflation down to 2% over time. That's what we're really focused on. Whenever any of us go, particularly institutions, go through tumultuous times, and goodness knows you've been through a tumultuous time, uh, we look back and think, okay, what do we learn? Sort of an after-action report. Look at the pandemic and the pandemic uh, inflation. What would you say you learned uh, in terms of macroeconomics, in terms of the economy, from that experience? So hindsight is, is always a wonderful yeah. thing, right? Um, I think the fair way to judge the actions that were taken is uh, to put yourself in, in, in the, the place of, uh, of legislators and, and policy, other, you know, and, and central bankers around the world. And there was, there was no playbook. You know, there, we've never seen, we hadn't seen a global economic shutdown. People were, th were thinking that the pandemic might kill a whole lot of people and that we wouldn't have a vaccine for five years. We might not have an economy for five years. So these things were all very possible in March of 2020. And so we pulled out all the stops and Congress pulled out all the stops. 
With the benefit of hindsight, could we have done a little bit less and had a little bit of inflation? I guess we could. But I think if you look overall at the performance of the U.S. economy, our, our economy is the strongest. We, we're, the, we have the, you know, the, we're, we're actually also making the most progress on inflation, but we certainly have the strongest growth. We're back to uh, prior growth trend, um, you know, not just level of where we were, we're actually back to the prior trend. Uh, the labor market, the last time we had uh, this many consecutive months of unemployment below 4% was in the late 1960s, so it's more than 50 years ago. So our economy is doing very well from all of that, but you know, if you had perfect hindsight, you might, have, you might not have had as much inflation if we'd done less, although other countries who didn't do as much as we did also had substantial inflation problems. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I think my question was just a little bit different. It's not so much of assigning blame or saying did somebody make a mistake as are there things that going forward would change the way you conduct monetary policy that you learned from that, that maybe nobody had reason to know at the time, but it was an experience you went through? Well, I, you know, we, we were in a time of a very long time, in a reasonably long time, of disinflationary forces. And I think everybody's instinct had been attuned to risks coming from this direction, which is too low inflation. And so what this has taught us is that the, you know, now, the, now that, that, period, that period is over, and we now have probably going forward a more balanced uh, set of risks where high inflation and low inflation are, are, are both risks. In fact, right now the risk is still high inflation, but I'm, I'm assuming once we get back to 2%, we won't have that. But I, we've certainly learned that. And uh, I mean, you, 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 things, events are, are the, the, the possible range of events is so much wider than what, he, what we think it is on any given day, right? The tails are so wide, and it's just not human nature to constantly be thinking about things that are way out in the tail, but they happen in, in financial markets and in economies. They, they happen far more regularly than, than they should. I suspect every person in this room is well aware of what's going on with yields with bonds. Uh, it's been a big story, particularly in the longer end of the curve. What is your understanding of what is going on in the bond market and why those yields are going up, particularly, again, at the longer end of the curve? So it's really, uh, it's really two questions. One is, why is it happening? And, and the other is, why does it matter for policy? And so I would say on the why is it happening question, I think it's appropriate to have a little bit of humility. It's always hard to say exactly what's going on with longer-term yields. But, but this is what I think we can say. First, what it's not. It's not, apparently, about expectations of higher inflation. And it's also not mainly about shorter-term policy moves, so Fed funds moves over the next year or two. Really, if you, you can look at the two-year, for example, and the two years moved up a little bit since September, but really the move is in longer-run bonds. So it's really happening in term premiums, which is the compensation for holding longer-run securities, and not principally a function of the market looking at, at, at near-term fund rate. I think other, uh, other, a few other ideas about there are many candidate ideas, and, uh, 
and many people feeling their priors have been confirmed by this event, I'll say, as well. But um, so one would be just that uh, markets and analysts are seeing the resilience of the economy to high interest rates, and they're, they're revising their view about the, the overall strength of the economy and thinking even longer term, this may require higher rates. That could be part of it. Uh, you know, there may be a heightened focus on fiscal deficits. That could be part of it. QT could be part of it. Uh, another one you hear very often is the change, changing correlation between bonds and equities. If we're going forward into, if we are going forward into a world of more supply shocks rather than demand shocks, that could make bonds a, a less attractive hedge to equities, and therefore you need to be paid more to own bonds, and therefore the term premium goes up. So all, all of those uh, uh, are, are possible ideas. Then, then the question is, does it matter for us? As long as I'm talking about this, so. Um, the way I think about it is, uh, you know, we change our policy. Actual and expected changes in our policy affect uh, financial conditions. And persistent changes in financial conditions affect economic activity, hiring, and inflation. So one question is, are we seeing the longer-run bonds, are they the increases in, in rates, are we seeing those come through in financial conditions in a persistent way? And I think if you look at financial conditions indexes, the answer so far would be yes, you are. Uh, persistence, it will be a matter of, of, of just seeing with our own eyes. But certainly, they're coming. if you look at financial conditions indexes, they're showing tightening, and it's a lot because of longer rates. Then the question is, is it endogenous? And is it just, is it just because the market expects us to take things, to, to, to take further actions to, to, uh, to tighten monetary policy, in which case if you have to follow through? But that doesn't seem to be the case. It, it, it doesn't seem to be principally about expectations of us doing more. It seems to, that the other factors are the more, uh, the more prominent ones. Another question is? Bottom, bottom line, though, that, that means it probably does over time. It makes sense. It's something that we'll be looking at. Well, that, that's the question I was asking, is over time. It, it, from what you understand right now, do you think this is a temporary phenomenon? Or do you think there are structural factors, whatever they are, and we can talk about what they might be, that would really, are, uh, this is the future that we're looking at now. Well, so of, of the factors I just listed, some of them are shorter term, some of them are longer term, and some of them could be either. So for example, concerns over fiscal deficits, uh, that, that could be a longer term factor. The, the, the change in, in correlations between stocks and bonds could be a longer term. I, I don't think we know. I think, um, you know, basically bond prices are set by supply and demand. The supply of, of treasuries is, is, a, is a known thing, but demand can be affected by any and all of these theories, and also just by sentiment, sentiment too, which is hard to characterize. So, you know, markets have been volatile. They've been uh, longer, you, you know, you've seen the uh, rates moving up and down a lot. I think we have to let this play out and watch it. Uh, but, we, you know, for now, it, it looks, it's, it's clearly a tightening in financial conditions, and so we'll be watching it carefully. Talking about the fiscal side, and you've been very careful repeatedly to say you want to stay in your lane, you're not responsible for fiscal issues. At the same time, you have to take into account, and it looks like the United States is going to have to borrow a fair amount of money. By the way, other countries are as well around the world. We have a, a big, a big supply of treasuries coming on board. Uh, to what extent do you think that is a longer-term issue? And let me tie it back to something you referred to in your remarks, actually. When we see geopolitical conflict around the world, like in Israel, like in Ukraine, some of the buildup with respect to China, the defense spending is going to be elevated for the United States and for other countries. Do you take that into account in figuring monetary policy? Because it may well mean that we're borrowing a lot more money than we have in the past. So we, of course, 
see the things, same things that everyone else. I just came back from IMF meetings this weekend, and there's a lot of talk of the very large resource demands that organizations like the IMF and, and of course, countries are facing, and the need for substantial amounts of revenue. You mentioned military. There's also dealing with, with climate change and things like that. So it's a, there, there's a lot of that. Um, we don't, as you mentioned, we don't comment on, on uh, fiscal policy. Actually, the fiscal authorities have oversight over us and not the other way around, so we, we stay away from that. Um, so I, I, I would just say everyone knows that it's not a secret, and about all I can say is we know that we're on an unsustainable path fiscally. It's not that the level of the debt is unsustainable. It's not. It's that where the path we're on is unsustainable, and we'll have to get off that path sooner rather than later. It's not really something, though, that affects a, a monetary policy decision about whether how much we raise rates in the next six months. It's not. It's not going to be driven by. Um, uh, it, I mean, if there were some vast new fiscal policy that were about to be enacted, and then that that would have an effect on the models and have an effect on projections, and indirectly that would affect us. But we would not be in a position of responding directly to fiscal policy. When we talk about the treasury market, obviously there's, there's buying and selling. Uh, and the United States government is issuing a lot of treasuries. There's also a question of who's buying. And we're, we now have one buyer who stepped out of the marketplace, namely the Fed, which is a big buyer. Uh, at the same time, we're getting reports that maybe some of the overseas buyers uh, may be pulling back as well. How do you take that into account in, in, in assessing where we're going with long-term bond yields? So actually, um, uh, I think buying by overseas uh, entities has actually been pretty robust this year. So there have been some small changes, but I think by and large, it's been it's, they've, they've been buying uh, you know robustly. Again, we look at we look at the broad financial conditions. We look at interest rates, other asset prices. That's what we look at. We're not we, we're not um, you know we don't focus on fiscal policy. We wouldn't change monetary policy. Because of, uh, for example, it, uh, you know, because we think that the U.S. is on an unsustainable path. Everyone knows that. Uh, we're just going to do monetary policy to achieve maximum employment and stable prices, uh, and that's how we think about it. I'm curious, though. Um, one of the things you're most concerned about is the real economy. What's going on in the real economy? You distinguish yourself from some of your predecessors in that you have a significant exposure to the private sector, not just the public sector, academics. As you talk to CEOs, people in business, uh, what are you hearing about the cost of capital? Because these bond prices are really affecting cost of capital uh, for the first time in a while. There was a long time the cost of capital felt like it was almost zero. And business changes an awful lot when, you really, when the price of money goes up. I talked to several people this week who run companies, and they each said that the economy remains strong and that they don't see the consumer you know, you see, it, it, there, there's some areas where, where, where spending is softening, but overall, I mean, look at the retail sales number. The yeah. consumer is strong, um, uh, volume is not going up very much, but, but uh, companies are profitable. You don't, you know, now if you get to where I think the cost of capital would really matter would be for smaller companies and, and early stage companies, and that really does matter. So we, you know, we don't have a lot of tools. We have interest rates, and they're far from perfect. Perfect. It's famously a blunt tool, mm -hmm. but it's what we have to get uh, uh, inflation down. And, and really, the world counts on us to deliver uh, low and stable inflation. That's what we have to do. And 
you know, at a time like this, there are, you know, we know that we're having negative effects on, you know, we had the home builders in this week. It's a very tough time in the whole home building industry. And um, we know that, uh, but ultimately, what we want to get back to is a long period of price stability. That's the best thing we can provide. And that, that policymakers and businesses and everyone can, and people can, can just lead their lives not worrying about inflation. This is what we can deliver. It's what we have to deliver. And this is the time. You know, our independence is, is not for times when we're really popular. It's for when we're now when we're doing something that, that, that really the public counts on us to do, notwithstanding that it's, that it's challenging and difficult. And, and, you know, higher interest rates are difficult for everybody. You have not wavered from your commitment to 2%. You did it again today, 2%. No question about it. There are those who suggested, including some colleagues in the Fed, that maybe the bond market is doing part of your job for you. Is that the way you see it? I, look, I would, I would say it this way. Um, the whole idea of, of uh, tightening policy is to affect financial conditions. And to the extent higher bond rates reflect that they do. They're producing tighter financial conditions right now. So that is, that's how monetary policy works. That's literally how it works. So again, in principle, as long as, they're, as, long as uh, bond rates are going up for, the, for some reasons, and they're not going up just because they expect us to do things, so that if we don't do them, they'll come right back down. As long as, and we don't think that's the case, actually. It doesn't, I don't think it's the case. It's, it doesn't seem to me that's, that's what, where analysis leads you. Then sure, that's a tightening. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve. And therefore, it seems like almost arithmetic, it must reduce some of the impetus for you to continue to raise rates. At the margin, it could. I mean, I think that remains to be seen. And by the way, I'm not blessing any particular level of longer-term rates, but just in principle, that's right. Uh, so let's talk about the labor market. Uh, you referred to that in your remarks as well. Uh, and as you say, vacancies have come down some, although they still are pretty elevated, if I'm not mistaken. Quits have actually gone up some. It seems to be a tight labor market. What do you make of what's going on in the labor market right now? Labor market has been extraordinarily strong. So what happened in the pandemic was we had a negative labor supply shock is one way to think about it. So a whole lot of people left the labor market when the pandemic happened and then didn't come back. And so when the economy reopened and everybody, you know, there was, remember there was revenge travel and revenge everything, uh, very strong demand and, and there just weren't the people. So you had two job openings for every person actively seeking employment. We've never been anywhere near close to that. There was panic that, you know, and wages and bonuses, and particularly in things like uh, in-person services where people had not gotten big wage increases and didn't want to come back to work. So that's, that's where we were. So since then, there are very many signs that the labor market is getting back into balance. And I talked about some of that in my remarks. Uh, surveys of work, you know, we survey businesses we don't do it, but other people survey businesses and say, are workers plentiful? And that measure, that measure was no, but now it's back to pre-pandemic levels. You survey workers, are jobs plentiful? And that was at an all-time high, and now it's still high, but back. So wages are, wage increases are coming back down to more normal levels. Job openings are down from 2 to 1.4. They were at 1.2 in the, in the very tight labor market of 2019. By, so, by you know, the, the work week, by so many measures, the labor market is gradually cooling. And part of that is this, all through 2022, we thought we were gonna get more labor supply and we didn't. And I personally thought, well, I guess we won't get any. And then we've gotten a substantial amount this year. The, the labor, female labor force participation is at an, in, in prime age workers is at an all time high. 
which has to be related in, in some way to uh, work from home. But labor force participation increased, immigration increased, and now you, you see that in, in the overall cooling of the labor market. So even though job creation is still very high, there are the workers to fill those jobs. And again, businesses will tell you it's, that it's very different. It's still a very tight labor market, but it's, it's loosening. Coming back to your goal of 2% inflation, what have you learned from this experience about the relationship between inflation and labor? I mean, there's a lot of talk about a Phillips curve, whether it still applies, whether it's weaker, what is it? What, what is your hypothesis right now with the relationship between inflation and labor market? Let me tell you what it was before. So um, one of my favorite charts is just the slope of the Phillips curve over 40 years. And so it shows the relationship between unemployment and inflation. If you go back to the high inflation of the 70s, it was a very tight relationship. And that relationships went down and down and down to the effect where the Phillips curve, there was almost no relationship, meaning uh, the, the, the Phillips curve was very, very flat. Um, now, actually, if you just ignore cause and just look at the data, it will tell you that, that the relationship is back. Do we really think that's a sustainable thing? I don't know. What, what happened, though, was that people, people came to seriously expect 2% inflation, something like 2% inflation. And if people expect that, if companies expect it and workers expect it and you expect that in your shopping, then that's what will happen in, in a way. And that's what, that's what happened. So even in very, very tight labor markets, we didn't have high inflation. I was at the Fed since 2012 as unemployment went from six to five to four into the threes for the first time. And, you know, the models were all saying that we should be seeing some inflation. And we never saw, we never really saw 2% inflation on a sustained basis during that era. So we learned that the Phillips curve was really flat. Some pronounced it dead. Um, now, uh, I, I don't think most of the inflation we're seeing at all is from, is from the Phillips curve, though. I think it was built really the collision of very strong demand, really strong demand, with, with constrained supply. Cars being a great example. Many people wanted cars, didn't want to ride public transportation, wanted to move to the suburbs. Unlimited demand for cars. Interest rates are low. Yet we couldn't get semiconductors, so there are no more cars. Car production went down. How do you solve that problem? Prices just go way, way up for cars. That's how you clear the market. So that's, that's a classic example of what happened here. It really wasn't about the Phillips curve. It was more about constrained supply and demand more broadly, especially for goods at the beginning. Let's turn to another responsibility of yours, which is the banking system. Last March, we had something with scare because of, I guess, interest rate risk with Silicon Valley Bank and then some others. Uh, are, are we through that now? Where are we in that process? Are you, are you resting easy? So what you pay us for is not to rest easy. Um, we, uh, we, we don't do that. Uh, so, but I would say where we are is this, though. Things have certainly settled down, certainly have settled down. Um, we see the funding markets is fine. We see, and you know, we, we, we paid a lot of attention to banks that, that looked anything like the banks that had the problems and made sure that they, that they had credible liquidity plans and plenty of liquidity and, and all of that. And so I think all of that has worked. And we, we set up this facility that's available to, for banks to borrow. And so all of that has led to a real settling down. But you know, our job is to be on the case. And you know, we're still on the case. And uh, we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep after that. Um, banks are generally very well capitalized and highly liquid in our country. Banks are strong. You know, we benefit from all those years of reform under Dodd-Frank and, and Basel III that we went through, uh, you know, with former Governor Tarullo right. uh, and, uh, and many others. Yeah. And so we benefit from a very strong, well-capitalized 
uh, banking system that's much better at managing its risks than the one that entered the global financial crisis. Very well capitalized, but you want some more. This You're is a proposal. The Basel III proposal, which is, you know, it's a, it's a rule that's out for comment, so there's not a lot I can say, but we do expect a lot of comment, and we do expect to take those comments very seriously. Talk about the commercial real estate. Uh, there are some concerns out there in the marketplace of what's going on, because obviously there's a repricing that comes with your increased rates. Uh, it's thought that there's some real estate out there that is not the, worth the money that was originally financed with it. Uh, how concerned should we be about that as something lurking out there that could really d affect the system overall, not just the people invested? So there's work from home, and, and that's affecting downtown real estate in a lot of big cities, and um, uh, higher rates as well, as you point out. So this is, this is an issue that we pay a great deal of very careful attention to. Uh, commercial real estate is not a, is not a principal risk or, or a, a major risk for the very large, largest banks. Right. It is much more for uh, regional and, and really, the, really the smaller banks have, have proportionally a much larger exposure to real estate, so commercial real estate. So what we've done is the supervisors are in there looking at re real estate portfolios. They're working with banks to make sure that they have, they have plans to deal with the problems they have in their portfolio. These, uh, these problems evolve over time. They don't, they don't land with great suddenness like a market event. And so we're working with, all of the bank regulators are working with uh, banks that have you know, concentrations of troubled real estate to work it out. Um, there will be losses for sure. Uh, you can drive down through most downtowns, in many downtowns anyway, and see uh, buildings that are empty and things like that. But we're, work we're working through it uh, and you know, we're on that case and, and don't see it as uh, you know, as presenting much broader problems, but our job is to make sure that it doesn't. As you mentioned, regional banks are where a lot of people focus on this. As you conceptualize the banking system, what is the role of the regional banks? We have the super big banks that don't look like they're going anywhere, and we've got the community banks, the smaller banks, that we understand are critical, for, particularly for small businesses and local context, but what about the regional banks? How much pressure is on them? And what would the, the damage be to the system if in fact there was more consolidation with some of the big banks? I think the regional banks are very important, extremely important. You know, we, are, we have 4,500 banks, which is a lot more than any other country per capita or per dollar of GDP, but we have, you know, our, our GSIBs, the largest banks are the leading banks in the world in profitability and in their success in their business. We have community banks in, 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 you know, who deal in, in smaller communities. But we also have these great regionals, and I think they do, they do a, a great business among, with, you know, with, with many companies, and uh, I, I do think their business model is under pressure, and I would not like to see us add to that by treating them exactly like, like GSIBs. I think they, need, they don't need exactly the same attention that a GSIB gets. So, but I, I would say we, we, I personally think, and I think we at the Fed strongly think that, that, the, that the regionals and the smaller regionals are, are an enormously important part of our banking system. Okay, you've been very generous with your time. Really appreciate it. I have one last question. Are you having a good time? And, <laughs> you and if now, so, why? Now or? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I assume this wasn't that pleasant, but in general, are you enjoying your job? <laughs> I would say this. First of all, it's, it's an incredible honor to do this job. And every day I do it, I feel so fortunate and so lucky and blessed to be entrusted with this. And uh, you know, all I want to do is do the best job I can for the public that we all serve. Uh, and yes, there's, there's a lot that, that's enjoyable about it. But mostly, it's just uh, so important to get it right. And that's what we're trying to do. Thank you so much, Chair Powell.
That's really good of you. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.